I see how great many of the speakers and many of the ideas are and you know I start kind of doubting a little bit okay am I worthy should I be here 20 minutes before I'm supposed to be on stage I am in my hotel room I was lying on my back sweating trying not to throw up because I'm so nervous about what I'm about to do This is Nordic Founders Stories a show about those from the Nordic countries who took a leap of faith by starting to build something and what went down along the way. I'm Patrick Bates, and on the show today, how defining events has formed Hjalmar Gislason to found five tech companies since 1996, and what he learned in the process. When you're a child, your career aspirations are the stuff dreams are made of. No matter what you are doing and what your dreams contain, you feel convinced that when you grow up, you can be anything you want to be. For a young Yalmar Gislason, that was an active lifestyle. Growing up on a farm in a small university village 80 kilometers north of Reykjavik, he was always out and about in nature with the occasional video gaming in between. And even though he started to learn how to code at the age of eight, he by no means dreamed of a career in technology. He actually rather wanted to become a photographer or documentarist. But looking back, there were still indicators that Yalmar would choose another path. For one, his mother was a computer teacher and his father had been working with computers years before his birth. And secondly, his dad started two businesses, a greenhouse farm and a construction company. And you know what they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And as it turns out, he wasn't the only family member that built companies. My grandfather has this great story. He basically, he grew up in Reykjavik, but he didn't, you know, he was never at home in the city. So I guess... You know, the day he would probably have been diagnosed with ADHD or, or something like that. So he was always trouble. So he was sent to, to a farm in the countryside to, uh, you know, an older couple that didn't have any kids. And he loved it there. And he ended up taking over the farm, which was very small, very poor farm. And then kind of throughout his lifetime, he transformed that into a really big farm with, uh, you know, employing a lot of people and building a, a large family around that. Uh, so in some ways... That's not the typical entrepreneurial story, but that is very much an entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial story for the time. Like this is entrepreneurship. Instead of looking, you know, twenty years back, you look sixty or seventy years back. Certainly, I mean, it's uh, it, it's just generational, and yep. this this generational entrepreneurship that we're talking about, it started with your grandfather. Uh, well, even his father was uh, a business owner as well. So here in Reykjavik. So yeah, I've actually never before thought about it like that. But yeah, I guess we've, we, it's now kind of a, at least a fourth generation of kind of, you know, like to start things, like to start businesses and, and uh, try, you know, see what happens if we, if we take an idea and run with it. So you, you could say you were destined to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, I just felt like it was the most natural thing in the world to do. I, I didn't necessarily think that, you know, I had to kind of go through college and then university and then kind of apply for a job and kind of work my way somewhere. To me, it's just, you know, you do what you feel is right every time and, and you know, it somehow 
works out or, or something else happens and you know life takes you somewhere else yeah so kind of being a yes man in a way right kind of it's it's kind of in your nature to say yes to things and go with the flow a little bit but selectively though you know and that's definitely one thing i've learned since is you know to say no a lot more to be a little bit more selective i you know you're absolutely right that i am the type of person that i can get excited about almost anything and i also aim to please people so you know i have burnt myself many times by taking on way too many projects and taking on way too many responsibilities that i then get swamped in work or you know i'm unable to do them properly so i'm much more disciplined now and kind of looking at things and being realistic about this is super exciting i can maybe kind of chip in an idea here or there or a little advice but you know i can't participate in this if uh if it's going to require any more of my time really so yes i go with the flow but more and more selectively so well i have i have a quick question for you then because could, do you think you can describe to me a time where you said yes to something and your conscience told you maybe that was the wrong decision and then it turned out to be a disaster. Can you describe a moment where that ever happened to you? Um, so I'm, I'm lucky in the way I, I've not had a lot of disasters in my life. But are there... Um, I'm trying to think of somewhere where... Most of the things that come to mind are, you know, more... Not necessarily disasters, but more like, you know, I end up scrambling to fulfill the duties or fulfill the responsibilities I've taken on. And I've just felt that I could have done so much better job if I had more time to do it. And maybe kind of it could have been a bigger opportunity if I'd put more into it. Uh, the There's nothing really kind of, like I said, disastrous that comes to mind. There. It, let me rephrase it. Not disastrous, but something mm -hmm. where you've said yes, and then you've regretted it. So my last startup before my current one, Grid, called Data Market, started in 2008 here in Iceland, and then uh, 2012 moved to the US to set up sales and marketing, hired a small team, and, and kind of ran with the business there. Uh, and in 2014, we got an acquisition offer, which was actually a great outcome for everyone involved financially, and it was quite exciting, kind of joining a bigger company and, and so on. So very much kind of went with like, you know, the, the offer is on the table. I really want this to happen. You know, negotiated quite you know well, I think. But at the same time, you know, didn't necessarily think through kind of the the next step. What happens after this is done? Like, where do we take it from here? And you know, I guess it's quite common for entrepreneurs that they you know there's some sort of remorse, there's some sort of regret in kind of selling the business and then seeing it go in a different direction. So I guess that's one where you know saying yes without thinking or you know, going with the flow without thinking more critically about kind of, okay, what's, what's next? What, what are some of the next steps? You mentioned regret there was, was that you kind of regretted selling the business. Is that something you, you felt or? No, not at all. So, you know, all things considered, I'd do it again. It was the right outcome. It was the right thing to do at the, at the time. But there is just, you know, there was some regret in like thinking about, okay, what could this have become if we'd continued running it on its own? And we would never know what that uh, alternate future looked like. Or if we'd simply kind of been more prepared for the things that followed, like, you know, how to integrate the companies, how to run this as an integrated part of another business and so on. So in some ways, it's the fact that the vision and the ideas in some way some ways died or got diluted inside of a bigger organization. That's the the regret I have there. 
I'd like to quickly just, before we continue with this, uh, the saga of the businesses, I'd like to just quickly backtrack. So we are in your village and you have, you know, you're growing up. At what stage do you leave this village and pursue maybe your entrepreneurial side or whatever it was out in the big wide world? So the way the educational system built up here is we have something that's maybe kind of the other system I'm familiar with is the American one. So we have something that's kind of a crossover between high school and college. So you go to a different school typically at age 15. And at that time, there was no school, you know, in that village or anywhere in that vicinity. So uh, I, I went to a boarding school, you know, pretty far away from home, like, you know, three, three hours drive from where I grew up. And that's when I kind of really left home for the first time, uh, living in boarding school and, you know, went there for four years subsequently, you know, went home in the summer, obviously, and occasionally on the weekends and so on. But that was a a big and in some ways kind of a formative step because you're stepping out of the village where you know everyone and, you know, everything is familiar to joining a completely different group of people that you've, you know, most of whom you've never met before. But it was, it was a great experience. You know, if, for me at least, boarding school was fantastic. Like some of the most energetic and formative uh, years of your life to just live with, you know, in that case, 200 other people, similar age, you know, the energy, the ideas, the, the uh, crazy things that, that happen are just uh, something that, you know, I, I can't imagine having kind of learned everything I, I learned there just about, you know, life, the universe and everything in any other way. Is there a moment in this sort of boarding school um, period of your life that you can really recall on that had a big impact on you? Um, there is one that comes to mind. So every year we had this one week that was like outside the curriculum. So you'd get external presentations and visitors. And I remember that one year, probably when I was my second year there, an entrepreneur, <laughs> it's actually a, a, a pretty funny guy. He, do you know Lazy Town, the kids show? So he's the inventor of Lazy Town. He is actually the elf <laughs> in Lazy Town. And this is something that he used to be a pretty good athlete, as I guess anyone that's seen the show can, can tell. And he just somehow got this idea about this whole world of lazy town and you know started writing books and there were a few plays and then he kind of gets that into the international limelight through i think nickelodeon is the television station that was running that in the states and then all over the world uh, and he came there to our school and kind of talked about his journey i don't think he'd uh, made the tv deal the international tv deal yet then but he was incredibly passionate and incredibly energetic and incredibly convincing about just, you know, pursue your dreams and kind of, you know, don't let anyone talk you down and so on. And when I think about like what in some ways gave me courage to to pursue some of the things that I was chasing, that, you know, lecture comes to mind again and again. Wow. But what, how did that make you feel then? That, that experience, that you know, presentation, that whole moment. Mm -hmm. What did it spark in your brain? What was going on in your mind? I think more than what's going on in my mind was just that feeling, like 
that energy that you could you could just you could feel that he was just willing things you know uh, into existence and you got excited with him you you wanted him to succeed and i think that's kind of that's a quality that you often see by entrepreneurs they are kind of in a room and they somehow manage to get everyone around them excited about what they want to build you know even in sometimes some of the craziest ideas but just you know they you make a convincing argument, but maybe it's you know more about you know you want to be a part of that fire that you can see in their in their eyes, and that you know draws people in. So it's more of a feeling uh, in my almost in my gut more than kind of something I was going through my mind. So essentially, uh, Malnus's passion for what he was doing rubbed off on you in a way that you kind of it sparked your your kind of understanding of what's possible in a way. Absolutely. Uh, and the courage to do it. Like he also talked quite a lot about mistakes and he was very open and, uh, and personal about some of the things that he'd done, done wrong as well. And just, you know, putting that all on the table and, you know, showed us, uh, and I know I'm, I'm not alone in, in remembering this, you know, just showed us like, hey, it's fine to try and it's even fine if it fails. You just stand up and you try again and keep going. Your first entrepreneurial venture then, mm -hmm. which moment in your life was that? I think there are probably two distinct events I can point to. First of all, coding myself, like you know, creating something that I came up with myself is probably something that's happening, you know, 10, 11 years old, something like that. And then when I was 13, I sold my first piece of software. And I'd probably trace it back to that more than the first company that I then started when I was 20. Because the, the way things were distributed then is that there was a a computer magazine, local, you know, distributed in, in Iceland to people that had subscribed to it. And you could give away software there. And I kind of sent them this computer game I, I'd made. And then, you know, it, it was a computer game. It had three levels in the free version. And then people could literally send me cash. And I would send them a, a diskette back with the uh, upgrade with the 100 levels for that wonderful game. And it was published. And, you know, a week later, the first 500 kroner, the equivalent of like $5, came in the mail. And I sent the game back. And I can really remember kind of the moment when that came in the mail. Like, you know, somebody actually paid for something that I made with, you know, just that I thought up and made, made happen. This is the thing, right? This is what, what makes an entrepreneur and, and that feeling an entrepreneur gets. It's something you build and then you can sell is, mm -hmm. is something that is, is driving the entrepreneur spirit in a way. And, and I think that, you know, what, from what it sounds like, that feeling, which we all, you know, all entrepreneurs know this feeling, but that feeling you got at the age of 14, mm -hmm. at an age where you're being shaped by and influenced by so many things around you and it's such a, an important time in your life. That must have had a big impact on you. You're 14 years old and you just sold something you have built. Can you describe that feeling? I, I guess it takes away some of the self-doubt. Like, have I actually made something that people find valuable or people find interesting? You know, yes, here's validation, here's actual money. It's not so much about the money, though. It's about the validation. It's about the fact that you have, I, I guess, other form of validation would have made me feel very similar to that. I remember another similar moment a couple of years later when I'm at the boarding school I had made another computer game and there was a, a computer lab at this school and I walk in there and literally every single screen in the computer lab is playing my computer game that was another moment where I was like oh this is cool <laughs> because then it's then it's also like it's peer recognition it's not just somebody that you've never met that kind of sent you money it's actually 
people you know and people around you that are, are validating that. That's insane. That's that's a, a game changer for for a teenager to have that feeling. So, were you the most popular guy in school? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not at all. I, I guess I was a, a pretty unusual mix of you know. On the one hand, I was computer geek, but at the same time, I was also quite athletic. I played a lot of sports, basketball being my main go-to sport. So I kind of belonged to, I guess you could say, kind of two cultures that don't meet that much, at least didn't back then. But, you know, I was by no means a public kid. I was a very kind of, on that scale, I think I was very average. Also, I I was very shy back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, I am an introvert uh, by nature. So you know, most of my kind of human interactions are, are learned and, you know, quite deliberate. So, you know, that had a big influence as well. I wasn't like, I wouldn't then, you know, have gone out and, and bragged about, you know, the computer game or anything like that. It's more something I internalize and kind of just feel proud about it and, you know, then walk in like, hey, this is, you know, cool. Do you think that therefore being an introvert has made you a bit more humble in, in, in what you do and your achievements? Um, by nature, I am quite humble and I have a hard time. I've actually, even just recently, kind of gone through training and in a, being a little bit more assertive about, you know, things I have achieved and, and things I've done just because it's, uh, it can be a very helpful selling point. Uh, so yes, I, you know, it probably goes hand in hand being an introvert and then not being too kind of braggy or, or too, uh, yeah, too, forward about talking about your yourself and your accomplishments that said i've gotten quite a lot of training in public speaking and kind of having to convince you know anyone from employees joining my companies or co-founders joining my journey to you know investors and so on so you know that's just something you get better at over time so so do you have any kind of techniques that you've learned then that have helped you overcome or push your boundaries from from introvert to extrovert? So I'll share a story here. So my first public speaking engagement ever uh, on behalf of my company was internationally. So I was, you know, I'd met some Silicon Valley entrepreneur here in Iceland, liked what we were doing. He was running a conference uh, in California in the Bay Area. And he invited me to come over and uh, talk about it. So at the time, I was making a very early kind of mobile-based game. So back then, it was all just text messages in the year 99 or something like that. And, you know, I prepared extremely well, you know, prepared the slides and what I wanted to talk through. And I memorized the whole thing I was going to go with. And then I show up at the conference hotel, you know, attend the conference. I think it was a three-day conference and I was on day two. So I attend the first day and kind of soak it all in. It's a really big conference, probably like 5,000 people at the conference, but many, many, many different tracks though. So, you know, not everybody attending everything. And then, you know, I see how great many of the speakers and many of the ideas are. And, you know, I start kind of doubting a little bit, okay, am I worthy? Should I be here? And also, you know, public speaking and just speaking to to strangers in general, not not first nature to me. So as it draws closer, and I'll just kind of skip over a few steps, but 20 minutes before I'm supposed to be on stage, I am in my hotel room. I was staying at the at the conference hotel, lying on my back, 
sweating, trying not to throw up because I'm so nervous about what I'm about to do. And then I have to go. Yeah, I, I can't not show up. So I, I you know, drink a glass of water. I walk over and I am nervous as hell when I kind of I go on stage. I cannot. So I, I remember vividly kind of going on stage and seeing kind of the faces. I think there were maybe two, three hundred people in the, in the room and probably very white and, you know, start speaking with a very kind of shaking voice. But then just something kicks in. First, it's kind of very much kind of the script that I'd learned and very much kind of the, you know, word by word, trying to memorize exactly how I was going to articulate the things I wanted to say. But then because it's something I know by heart and because it's something I'm passionate about, I just forget that I'm there in front of this big audience. And it just kind of somehow goes into auto mode and I run through my slides, you know, no feeling of nervousness whatsoever. Last slide, thank you. I see the room again and I almost literally ran out of the room. You know, there were some people that were obviously waiting to have a little bit of a chat, but I just couldn't even imagine staying around and having, you know, more interactions with human beings. (laughs) But that was your first time kind of really getting in front of the public eye and actually speaking in front of them, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It was. And it's definitely something that I wish we had done more of, you know, in through uh, throughout education. I think it's one of the more overlooked things, at least in our educational system, is just preparing us to how do we speak in front of an audience? How do we express our ideas so that others can understand them and, and get excited about them? I think you're quite right. That would be a, a game changer in the educational system, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. I think so. Well, you said there were two kind of entrepreneurial starting points and you went for the 14 year old selling the game at the first uh, sort of experience but then you talked about you know the next moment was hitting a 20 so do you think you could then take me on that journey so what happened after you know school you all your friends are playing your games what happens next yeah so after the boarding school the natural next step in the education system here is university degree so i by then know that I want to pursue a career in computers. So I sign up for computer science. Computer science is one of the few subjects where you're almost expected to know how to program when you join. Very different from if you want to become a surgeon. Nobody expects you to have done surgery before you before you join. I was one of the kids that I knew a lot more than even most of the teachers about programming, but I definitely did not know the trade. I did not know the science. I did not know all the math that they were teaching and, and so on. So I thought I would kind of go through this easy, which you know I did when it came to the programming courses, but not so much the other ones. I just didn't put the work in, and you know I felt this was not right. At the same time, me and three friends, all from the same boarding school, had some ideas about you know starting a business and. Actually, the idea was about starting a business around, you know, programming. We wanted to create software and sell it, but we didn't know what the software was. So it was more the idea of a company than it was an idea of a product. I did finish the exams, but then I I dropped out and we started pursuing that. So I'm 20. I told you before, the products I I started selling and making early on were, were games. So it ended up being a gaming company. And... What we did essentially is we took quite a lot of popular word games, you know, crossword games and 
other things that had never been done in Icelandic before. And we just adapted them to the Icelandic language, created a couple of concepts of our of our own there and, and threw it together and started selling that. And again, kind of, you know, a moment of success there because in our first year, we were the second highest selling computer game in Iceland after what I think was a predecessor of FIFA. Back then, obviously, the market was a lot smaller, but it was enough to pay our sufficient salaries throughout that year. And again, that's like, oh, this is actually something that can be done. And there was no turning back to school after that. Not that I wouldn't have benefited from that. I actually, you know, I'm even today, I'm on the, on the board of a university. So I definitely think that, you know, uh, it's not that I look down on, on uh you know, higher education or anything like that. I would have learned a lot of good things if I'd gone through that. But, you know, I just never looked back. And from there on, like like I said before, like the one thing has just come after another. And I've kind of not necessarily always gone exactly with the easiest flow, but, you know, just gone with the flow and never never went back to uni. What was the kind of pinnacle moment then that made you make that final decision and put your foot down on leaving? It was gradual. I didn't realize myself I'd quit until it was time for the for the spring exams. I actually have not even shown up at school for a couple of months. Ah, uh, okay. So so slowly but steadily you were spending less time at university, right? Yeah. So what was going through your mind then? You you were with three guys, old buddies from boarding school. Were you all three at university as well or? Yes, so there was me and three friends. Uh, we were all four at the university, three in computer science, allegedly, and then one in business. The guy that was on the business side, he actually continued. He went through his ed- education and kind of on time and on par. But all three of us nerds dropped out of computer science and started working on this full time. Hmm. But when you went, you know, I guess, of course, it was gradual, but you dropped out. Was there anyone around you in your circle, your bubble that, you know, disagreed with that or thought it was a bad idea? My mom, for one. (laughs) So she, and I think in many ways, wisely so, she thought it would be a better choice to stay around and do what everybody else does, finish the degree and, and take it on. My dad wasn't too pleased either, but I guess he couldn't say too much given his own background. But it didn't take many months until... It was clear that this was something, that this was actually a job and we were doing our own thing and we were, most importantly, enjoying it. So it wasn't a a long period, but at the moment, I don't think my parents were too happy about me dropping out of school. Very quickly, you saw a return on that, right? On that investment. Yes. And like I say, it wasn't like huge financial gains, but, you know, it was more, I remember we sold a license, the same games. Again, they are, they're word games, so they have some educational value. So it was a government organization that buys all the material for the schools and like all the, all the books and all, all the curriculum. And they licensed the game from us. And that was in that following summer. Uh, and it was, a, you know, it was something that was probably the equivalent of um, I don't know, half a year's salary for for like a, a real grown up, uh, and that was a that was a big big moment, you know, doing that huge deal, and we were we were super happy about that. So yeah, we had we had things to again validation we could point to, like this isn't just us being lazy or sloppy. It, there is actually something here, and I think that. As these wins are getting bigger, right, from selling the game in boarding school to this now, this deal here in, in your 20s, as the wins get bigger and, and you, you, you sort of, you, your confidence 
grows, right? And your ability or your confidence in your ability grows. Mm -hmm. And as your wins are getting bigger, does that then mean your goals and your vision increases as well? Yeah, for sure. And there's definitely a moment there where there's a leap, not just kind of a gradual journey, but a leap. So because of the success of the game, the national television, our equivalent of the BBC, you know, got wind of this and did a small interview. So, you know, it's a funny story, like four guys in a tiny room on the attic in, in uh, the house where we were living. There was also some merit in the in the games and so on. And the day after a, well, venture capital wasn't really a word back then, at least not here, but, uh, you know, an investor calls us and says, you know, are you looking for funding? And it was actually, I took the call and I was like, funding? I didn't even know what it was. So I had to ask him some fairly stupid questions about like, what do you mean? How does that work? You know, we ended up, actually didn't end up working with him, not on that venture. We I actually met him again at a later venture, but it was the first time it opened our eyes to, hey, you know, maybe, and this is in 98, it's a couple of years before the height of the dot-com bubble, but there's definitely a lot going on in tech already. But it opened our eyes to, hey, you know, maybe there's, you know, maybe there's something here. Maybe we can dream bigger uh, and actually get someone to fund a bigger project that we can work on. So you were kind of seeing this demand, in a sense, for, for what you were doing. Yeah, on the, in that sense, I mean, there was that demand came from the investor side, which is a little bit different. You know, I guess I can be a little bit cynical about the whole VC game. So I don't think, you know, that is necessarily the best validation you can get. But just kind of understanding that this is something that exists in the world, you can actually get someone, if you have a big enough idea that has a convincing chance of becoming something big, you can fund it ahead of time and sell it after. You don't have to bootstrap. You don't have to have the money at hand to build everything that you're building out. Mm, mm. Well, what happened next then, Omar? So what was the next stage? So, like I said, for the first time, we started thinking about, can we dream up something that needs bigger investment that we can go out and, and get some funding to build? And had a lot of ideas floating around. And one of them was about a fairly big, and you know, in hindsight, way too big, once again, game project that was actually going to be based on the Norse mythology. But we had no clue what we were doing. Like, we knew what we wanted the end product to look like, but we didn't have the slightest idea about you know how much work it would actually take to go from the idea to having the, the finished and final product, let alone sell it, uh, which is something that you know I feel I'm still... That's the area where I'm still learning most is, you know, how do you actually then commercialize what you create? But back then it was like you know, just make it and, you know, people would buy it. That was, that, that's it. There's nothing complicated about that, but it turns out there's a little bit more to it. So we planned this big project, which probably would have been, I mean, it wasn't the most expensive games at the time, but it would probably have taken 20 people, two, three years to build it. And we were four people that were going to build it in a year, but we got some funding enough to fund that first year. Uh, you know, got a, fairly good proof of concept together and like a, an early kind of playable prototype of the of the game but as the year progressed it became obvious that this was way too big of a project uh, for us to to build and it would take a lot more funding and muscle and power to do this 
for what happens next, it's probably good to remember when this is. So here we are kind of coming to the height of the dot-com boom. So our investors saw that we were highly capable technically, but they also had some other investments in, in other companies that were closer to monetization. So, you know, the idea came up, why don't we merge a couple of these companies and, you know, you can join them, you can you know, work on some of their projects and they can lend some power to your project as well, which, you know, ended up not being the case like you know what we ended up doing is we merged with them and we started working on on their projects and our computer game project died but you know it wasn't there wasn't a lot of i i don't know i won't say there wasn't any regret but we were working on incredibly cool and interesting things at the new company as well so it kind of just got a little bit forgotten and then you know we were working on on other things so now we're yeah this is 1999 and you know there's a there's a lot of really cool ideas, a lot of money floating around, and you know, a lot of excitement about tech in general. Brilliant. So it, it sounds like that, that idea that you had with the big game, albeit ambitious, it led you right to the, to the next level above. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually ended up selling my share in the new company after having been there for less than a year. And now we're kind of you know, beginning of the year 2000 to found another company. And then that's kind of where I, I mentioned this mobile game before that, you know, that, where I did my first public speaking. And that was that company. Uh, that was like big ideas, big funding, ran incredibly fast. And, you know, in, in some ways, that's, that's probably my university because I ran that company from 2000 where we got significant funding, both in the beginning of the year, but also towards the end of the year, after the bubble burst, we still managed to get in, even today, like I, I think in today's terms, we're talking about like 3 million euros to fund the the mobile gaming and mobile entertainment things we were, we were working on, but grew way too fast, hired way too many people, didn't know too much enough about the, the commercial side. And in particular, we believed that our market was selling to telcos. Telcos are great buyers. They have a lot of money, but they don't move fast. And we didn't have a lot of connections. So it was a big lesson in like, I actually, you know, there also believe we had fantastic product, but the go-to-market plan and the go-to-market motions weren't nearly enough to, to get us anywhere. So uh, we, we ended up running out of cash, having to basically close our offices largely. And then that company ended up merging with a Norwegian company I was working on on similar things, but I uh, I think it, it that also just waned. What was going through your mind? Uh, well, so well, this is a this is quite a journey. So at the beginning, obviously, a lot of excitement, uh, but then as we saw that you know money was getting tied and the sales cycles were taking a lot longer than we had expected them to take, and so on, and you know there would be some some uh, some some let's call it drama coming up, you know, in the end, it was the investors, they just, you know, they decided that they wanted to merge these two of their portfolio companies. I wasn't terribly happy, but I also didn't see any other way out there. So, you know, that's what happened. That meant that maybe half of the team could keep their job uh, at the new place. And, uh, you know, that, you know, mildened the blow a little bit. But uh, yeah, it was... That was a, a big roller coaster. I think actually looking back and thinking about it now, that's probably like when we had to 
lay off people and the companies were merged and I didn't believe in the in the journey that the merge company was on at all. That's probably the closest I've come to ever being, you know, I, I don't think I ever came close to being clinically depressed, but, you know, I was very sad about how things were evolving and not excited about work. And it's probably the only time in my life I've not been excited about you know, the things I'm working on. That was because mostly because of this disagreement between you and where the, the merger direction was going, is that right? Yeah, or just helplessness, not being able to do something to save the vision and kind of work on what I believed in. So not necessarily any grudge towards the investors because they were just doing what was right and I didn't have like any other means of moving in, in any other direction. But I think the sadness mainly came from personal things, just having to lay people off and you know see a great team disperse and go different ways some serious stuff i mean you know as close as you were have been to being depressed basically can you draw upon a moment from this dark time that stands out to you even today often you reflect on um there's a moment before the layoffs that probably remember more vividly which is we wanted to try to extend our runway by lowering people's salaries. So we went into kind of an all-hands meeting and said, hey, things are tough here. Can we come to an agreement on a lowered salary for everyone? And then there was a big project we were working on and we were hoping a, a sale would come through. And then we basically said, if we get here, there would be a, a bonus on the other end of that. But that was a really hard meeting. Like we didn't go properly prepared into it. We didn't know even kind of the the laws and regulations around these things, which, you know, it turns out you can't just, you know, almost, you know, put people up against the wall and say, either you take this salary cut or or you're out of here. So, you know, it wasn't very considerate. It wasn't very thoughtful. And in hindsight, just wasn't handled well at all. And I think this is actually, this is a moment I often think about when I'm asked, uh, are there moments that have taught you something? Like this was a moment where I realized it's in the end of the day, this is all about the people. You know, it's not about, you know, uh, like it had been before then, especially in that first company that I founded when I was 20. It was like, just let's show up at work, work 16 hours, and then, you know, rinse, repeat, uh, build that product. And like I said, if we build it, they will come, you know, the selling will take care of itself. There was no work-life balance. There was no thinking about, you know, mental health or, or anything like that. But, you know, now if I met my 25-year younger self and we would have a conversation about how to run a business, then this is where we would probably just wildly disagree. Now, you know, I think about the people first and foremost, how we can make, you know, great a great place to work, how we actually can, you know, work on work-life balance, how we can make sure people don't burn out, how we can make sure we have an environment where, you know, we can freely share our ideas, even if they're ridiculous ones, we can ask questions, and where we just generally feel good at work. And, you know, a lot of the things we're doing here you know, we offer people coaching. We have this great cafeteria. We even cater dinner boxes for people to bring home for their family in the in the evening and so on. All of this would have felt like, you know, that's some soft bullshit to my 25-year younger self. When we come back in just a moment, how Yalmar felt lost after leaving the merged company. Stay with us. I'm Patrick Bates. 
and you're listening to Nordic Founders Stories. This episode is sponsored by Startup Central. If you're looking to join and expand your entrepreneurial network, you need to check this out. I'm a member myself, which has actually gained me new customers to my video agency business. Their digital community is growing, and you also get access to quality coaching from top experts within their domain. It's pretty nice if you want to build or grow a business. If you need templates for budgeting, business plans, or pitch decks, they also have that in stock. So check it out by visiting the link in show notes. Hey, welcome back to Nordic Founders Stories. I'm Patrick Bates. So you'd think that upon the relative success Yalama's had at this point already, he'd be happy. But when he left Viva, the merged company he mentioned in late 2003, it's without really knowing what to do. I don't have a clue about what I want to do next. It's also probably, you know, when I came closer to thinking, you know, that, yeah, you know, I had low self-esteem. Yeah, it was not the, this was not the positive journey that I had expected. So again, didn't know what to do, you know, looked into quite a few things there in the fall of, uh, of 2003. Actually went back and took some university courses, but not in computer science. Uh, biology, philosophy, just to kind of you know, broaden my mind a little bit. Uh, and then in January 2004, I make this little tool for myself, which was uh, essentially a way to save interesting web pages that I came across when I was browsing the web. And I built it from scratch in about a week, tested it for a couple of days myself, and then I gave my friends access to it. And in, I've often thought back to this moment because I didn't even know how successful it was. Because when I put it out there, in about six weeks, 100,000 people had signed up for it and were using it. And you know, I was just scrambling to write the code and kind of keep the, the service running. So I built it because it was a useful tool. And obviously, it was something that others found useful as well. I didn't even realize at the time, but the main thing was the social aspect of it. Others could see what you were reading and found interesting as well. So almost like if you imagine Twitter, but the only thing you could post was links to other websites. That's in some ways kind of a somewhat fair description of it. But it took off like wildfire, but there was no plan. There was no business plan. There wasn't even a, an idea of how to monetize this or what to do with it. And I look back to this moment and think, if I had been better informed, or even just if there had been a more mature environment you know, in Iceland or just around me, if I'd known more people that had kind of gone through something similar before, this could have been turned into something fairly big. But for me, it was more like, oh, you know, I enjoyed it once again because of the validation. And there was a big community of people that were coming up with ideas about how to evolve this further and you know the community was a big kind of they supported themselves like if anybody had questions there were just volunteers helping others about how to set it up and how to do uh, all these different things so it was a big validation also in like this is not only useful but there are other you know it's not just me that is volunteering my time and, and keeping the lights on on the server here so uh, it consumed all of my time for for several months uh, like I said very validating it. But then I thought, hmm, I probably have to try to retrofit the business case to this somehow because I had no other source of income paying gradually more and more for the service to run this. Uh, so try to retrofit a business plan on, on top of it, you know, 
got some funding for that, just you know, small, probably by you know back then being too humble about what I had on my hands. Just got some friends and family funding locally. But in a weird twist of events, where this ended up, and I, I think I think I'm just gonna make a long story short here. Run this for a year and a half, and the business idea that came is that here search engines were already a big thing. Google had come along and kind of transformed search engines, but they were doing it on what was there on the websites, like on the links and all on everything that they could read from the website. But here we had by then over 200,000 people that were contributing human information about websites. Can we use that to improve search? So if a thousand people have found this one website and they have you know, said it's interesting, can we mine that somehow and improve search? So a little bit far-fetched you know, in, in hindsight that you know, that would be the best way to monetize on such a big community, but that's, that's the, uh, the thinking. So I learned a lot about search technology and through the funding, hired just three people. There were a team of four. And we ended up being acquired by a company that was only interested in the search technology that we had built. So there was a Yellow Pages company that was, you know, just, you know, they were going from print online and they needed someone that knew how to, how to make good search for the web. And that's how it ended up being acquired. You know, for me personally, that was a, you know, I, I, I had sold my share in that first company for something the equivalent of $20,000. For me, that was a lot of money back then, but it was not a, a life-changing amount. But in this case, it was actually more the equivalent of what I got was almost a million dollars for my share in that company. So that was life-changing, especially at the moment. I managed to pay off my apartment and haven't owed anyone a dime since. So this was, monetarily speaking, it, it was biggest sort of financial reward you've got so far in business. How how did that make you feel then? Can you describe how you were feeling during this moment? I think there, the money mattered. It was more than just the validation because this was a life-changing amount in the sense that, you know, I would go from living paycheck to paycheck to actually having no debt on my house, you know, being able to have some money to spare on, on other things as well. So in that case, I think maybe my mind was more on, hey, you know, this is pretty comfortable. This is, you know, this is a good reward for the time kind of put into things up until now. Here we're probably, so this is 2006. So we are, yeah, I'd been, <laughs> it was already 10 years since I started my first company. So I had never been highly salaried up until that point. So this was kind of a, you know, both a validation, but also, you know, it felt like, hey, you know, now I'm getting, not necessarily saying that, you know, uh, should have been rewarded for the time spent before, but it felt like here, this is the payoff. Like this is, this is what we've been waiting for. Madness, madness. That's, uh, that's really, uh, really quite a turning point. What was the, the next stage then after this third venture? Then I joined the acquirer. Uh, it, like I said before, it was a Yellow Pages company, but they were being spun out of a telco. So I became a, a business development guy for the telco, for the acquiring telco, uh, looking into new projects, essentially looking into how can a big and established old telco expand their business in a digital world, like what's next for a telecommunications provider. That was actually pretty fun. So first time I'd worked for a company bigger than 
my, you know, so I'd, I'd only worked for myself. So I'd never worked for a company with more than 25 employees before then. And, and then I was joining this telco that I think at the time had 1200 employees or something like that. Sorry to interrupt, but so you're, you know, you mentioned how you've only really worked for yourself, but then you're now going and, and working for this larger company. But so was there a, an element of you that kind of was now, you know, you're no longer working for yourself and you're no longer your own boss in a sense. Was that an element that you were sort of feeling and thought about? So I'd never thought about it before, but I definitely felt it. Like only a few months in, I started feeling, oh, this feels like, uh, this feels tight. Like it feels like, you know, it feels like, uh, you know, I can't just get an idea, uh, you know, in the morning and, and start running with it in the in the noon there, uh, in, in the afternoon, there are, you know, obviously other people to convince, there are politics involved, there are all sorts of kind of other things involved here. But it was fun being in a position at a, a bigger and, you know, actually a pretty powerful company. You know, I had access to a lot of resources, you know, I could basically chase some ideas of my own and try to kind of fit them on, access to research and, and so on. And actually there, the idea for my next venture, the one I mentioned before, Data Market, came together because I probably wrote a dozen business plans in my uh, just over a year that I worked for the telco. And, you know, I was obviously always trying to build that on the best available information, be that demographics for, you know, the, the target audience or relevant business cases from other telcos or, or whatever else. And it felt too hard to find the right data to build these business plans on top of. So at the time, you you saw kind of the rise of BI, business intelligence. So we had these business intelligence platforms that were giving people a very good a picture of what's happening inside of the organization. But when it came to understanding what's happening outside the organization, like what's happening in the market, what's happening in the demography, what's happening in the cultural and buying trend, you know, buying behavior trends that are going on in the market and so on, consumer trends, it was very hard to find the right data. And then when you finally found it or even had kind of bought it before you knew it was the, the data that you wanted, it was never in the right format either. So an idea started coming together for data market, which was essentially it would pull together as much quantitative information as possible from sources anywhere from census bureaus and statistics offices to the likes of the World Bank and UN to financial market data to market research uh, and so on. Pull that all together in one place so that people could come to one place, search through the entire database and visualize the data and then pull it down so that they could work with it in the format that uh, suited them. And that's what data market set out to do. So we built that out, you know, left telco, funded, founded and funded data market and started chasing that idea. And at the height of it, we had some 250 data sources from around the world, all integrated into the same platform, new data flowing in every hour from all of these different uh, data providers. But once again, failed to kind of first think about how to monetize it. So that was once again retrofitted. So I, I guess in some ways, as you can hear, I have a technology background. And since then, I, I think I've become a pretty good product guy. But at the time, and even now, I feel like I've not lent enough into the commercial side of things. And definitely data market was started with a fantastic idea for the technology and the product, but not a clear idea of who the target audience were, how we were going to get in front of them, how we're going to price out the services and, and kind of sell this. So that had to be learned over the next few years. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, of course, as well, you learn through experience, but the commercialization side of it is, is super important, right? Yes, it does. Turns out it does matter. <laughs> <laughs> to make the profit. <laughs> yes. But um, tell me, so this transition, you're going now back into your own venture, your own world, your own boss. Mm -hmm. How did that make you feel? I, it felt great. I mean, it felt liberating. So I would say that by the time, maybe half of my time spent at work was fun and, and exciting. And I was working on these new ideas and the business plans and all of that. And then half of it felt like just, you know, it was politics. There were unnecessary meetings. There were just things that I was dragged into that I didn't interest me. And I didn't feel that I was necessarily delivering value and, you know, nor were those meetings or, or those initiatives delivering value to me. So I went from that feeling to, you know, I'm my own boss again. I can do whatever I want and I'm building out this exciting thing that I, I believe in. Yeah. And I think it's just because the, the reason I ask is we're all entrepreneurs here. I mean, that's kind of a big part of it, right? It's, it's being your own boss and having that, that creative freedom, which is exactly what you, you, you got back in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the, because we were talking about people before, that's one of the things that I am um, being very mindful about these days uh, in the last few years. It's like, how can we build a culture where more of us have that feeling so that it's not just me with all the ideas and then everybody's working on, you know, what I want to chase or, you know, what my ideas are. But how do we make sure that we all internalize where we're trying to go? And then the ideas and the... Uh, quality of the product and the direction kind of you know comes from everywhere everybody feels a part of ownership and kind of you know feels at least to some degree their own boss if i find something interesting and valuable i can actually work on that and i can make that happen and i can deliver that as a part of the the overall value that the company is delivering so what's the answer then to that big question how can you make <laughs> everyone feel like their own boss in their own way um I won't claim I have a full answer, and I don't think that everybody can, you know, just work on whatever they like. But it, a lot of it is about alignment, uh, about you know being sure about what you want to achieve in the big picture, and you know aligning on that and making sure that everybody's kind of uh, aligned and excited about where we want to go, a and then people internalize that enough that they start coming up with ideas and improvements that otherwise probably wouldn't have come up. So yeah, alignment, alignment and trust are the two things. And maybe also, I think a sense of equilibrium or equality between you and your team and your customers, you know, when there's the sense of, of equality, they, you know, that I know they can still be respect and of course, respect for your boss, but at the same time, they respect you still for that, you know, and they enjoy you know, their roles more. There's just these benefits that come into play. And, you know, that equality can create that freedom and that sense of being your own boss in, in its own way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of a, a big part of it. I think where, you know, like I said before, it's not like working here means that you can just work on the things that you want or, or that you come up with. But, you know, as long as they are aligned, I hope everybody feels, and I think I can say everybody feels like they can kind of chip in and they can have an influence on not only what they're working on, but even the direction of the of the company to some degree. Mm, so important. So between data market and where you are now, which is grid, what happened between those two things there? So data market started in Iceland 2008, funded initially 
well, actually funded all the way through only by uh, Icelandic first angels and then uh, VCs. So we started building it out for the Icelandic market. The financial crash in 2008 actually had a big influence. So we saw certainly like a lot of people were interested in socioeconomic data and understanding the uh, the consequences of you know what had happened and and so on. So we saw quite a lot of demand for both data but also analysis and explanations simply of like what happened and why are things the way they are and why is the economy behaving in the in the way it's uh, it's behaving and so on and it was not on us to explain all of that there were a lot of other people that were using the data to get an understanding of that so that had an influence there probably kind of kept us focused on Iceland for a little longer than we initially had thought but then we started kind of building it out as a more, more international offering focused on the US market. And in 2012, when we felt we had a product to sell, I moved to Boston with my family. And we set up shop there, hired a few people on the sales and marketing side and uh, started running with it there. And while we were still experimenting on the go-to-market side, we managed to build the company up to over $2 million in revenue in 2013. We were even profitable for a while there, despite not only the funding that came in, and then in 2014, we got this acquisition offer by Click, a BI company originally out of Sweden, but by then US-based, traded on Nasdaq. And yeah, they made us an acquisition offer, worked through that for several months, and then Data Market became a part of Click. Me personally, I became VP of Product Management uh, at Click following that. And as the CTO, my boss was based out of Boston already. It was the right place to be. But the team originally continued working on data market as a part of Click's offering, which was very different, but then got dispersed in working on just different projects within the organization. And, and it was clear that we were not going to deliver what we had set out to deliver in terms of vision. The team wasn't the team it was any longer either. That was it with data market turning to Click, and then this transitioned you into... So, like I said, I took on a position as VP of uh, product management at Click. Worked there for three years, and that was, in many ways, there are parallels between that and when I was working for the telco that acquired my search company, in that, you know, about half of what I was doing, I felt like, you know, I'm delivering value, this is fun, this is exciting, and about half of it was like, what am I even doing here, uh, <laughs> type of stuff. But, you know, the idea for Grid started coming together quite early on, though, because, like I said, Click is a business intelligence company. And they, together with Tableau and Power BI, are at the forefront of what Gartner likes to call modern BI or data discovery, business discovery. They used all these different terms for, for that market. So there's Click, there's Microsoft with Power BI, and then there's Tableau. And these were supposed to be, and they were, some of the more approachable, more human-friendly tools in the business intelligence and analytics market, in the data market. And as soon as I started talking to customers, it became obvious to me that these are still power user tools. Only a few people within each organization really learn how to use them. And then they become known as the click girl or the Power BI guy within their organization that everybody turns to. So they end up servicing you know, 10 to 50 people within the organization. So whenever anybody needs some analysis done or a, or a dashboard built out or something like that, they will turn to that person. But it's not like these you know, 10 to 50 other people aren't working with data. They're just doing it in spreadsheets. So that's where my mind went. There's this gap between spreadsheet, which is the ubiquitous, you know, 
common denominator for working with data, be that you know structured data or numerical data, uh, and then kind of the specialized tools that are power user tools, and they usually come with six week training courses and you know quite a lot of friction in getting started using them. So how could we do something more for the everyday knowledge worker that encounters and works with data and numbers every day? without them having to almost make a break in their career to learn a new tool and get up to speed on some power user tools. So that's how the ideas for Grid started to come together. And today what we're building is the, you know, what we like to call a friendly data tool for your team. So we're basically putting together something that takes on a lot of the same, a lot of the work that today gravitates towards spreadsheets. But you know, making it much more modern, much more user friendly. So it's more both in terms of consumption of the data, it's a lot more approachable, but also in terms of the exploration part where you're just still trying to figure out what the data is telling you. I feel like the software industry has been very focused on making new and cool tools for the data scientists of the world and for you know, business intelligence experts and product analytics experts and so on, but very little attention have been given to the, the billion of us out there that use spreadsheets for pretty much all our data work. Uh, and spreadsheets haven't, you know, actually changed all that much in the 40 years that they've been around. It kind of reminds me, and I know it's different, but it kind of reminds me of the whole like Photoshop world. You know, like five years ago, the only thing that existed on a kind of professional level was Adobe Photoshop, right? And mm -hmm. it was very difficult to learn. It still is. It takes many hours of practice, a lot of expertise, but then comes along something called Canva. And this makes, you know, it's a transformation for so many small businesses without the time, the, the money, the energy, the resources to learn something that takes a lot of effort. You know, Canva is like a solution for that. And it's a game changer. You can just look at Canva's growth over the last two years and it's exponential. And I think that's a lot of, you know, the, the best solutions in the world, are the ones that make things easier, really, isn't it? Absolutely. So you, you are, you're spot on. What Canva has managed to do is they've managed to you know, make a lot of just everyday people feel and deliver like professional graphic designers. And what we are trying to do at Grid is to invoke that same feeling of competence and accomplishment when working with data and numbers and charts and graphs and those types of things. Game changer, man. I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. So looking back at it, Polymar, what do you think? Uh, has it all been worth it? Oh, yeah, definitely. What drives me is seeing ideas become reality and not necessarily my own ideas. I actually enjoy the way ideas shape over time and you know, they take shape through a lot of interactions. So I, I think I can say I, I booked the domain name for Grid back in 2015 probably late 2015. So, you know, it's it's been a while. And I think I can largely say that we're still chasing the same fundamental idea to bridge the gap between spreadsheets and the power user tools. Uh, but does the product that we've built now look anything similar to what I imagined back then? No, not really. I mean, you know, everything has changed. Everything from the target audience to the technology it's built on to, you know, the way it manifests itself to even kind of you know, the technology landscape has just shifted. There are new things we can rely on now that we couldn't rely on then and, and so on. But, you know, seeing ideas become reality is what drives me. And that's what entrepreneurship is all about. So that's where I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing anything else. 
And and exactly that. And it's it, like we said every you know throughout this this episode, the entrepreneur line is never straight, and it's constantly evolving, right? But you know, looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? There are a lot of things, but I think that then I would have just have done or made other mistakes instead. So I think that I'm in a pretty good place. There isn't any one thing I could kind of go back to and point to like this. You know, I if only I'd done this differently, I would be in a completely different place in my life. Or rather, if I'd done this differently, I would be in a much better place in my life. There are definitely play, you know, things where things have gone worse if I'd done something else. But I think it's just, it's often hard to pinpoint what it is that leads you to where you are. It's a culmination of a lot of different things. So I don't think if I had a way to go back and change one thing, I'm by no means convinced that I would change the right thing and end up in a better place. Yeah, it's, it's very much a difficult question. Um, I'd like to round this this session off, um, Hanma, with a little bit of a complicated, but maybe easy question, depends. What was you know the most important thing that you've learned in your life? And what was your life before learning it? And what was your life after learning it? Does that make sense? It does. And I think business-wise, it's definitely learning the importance of people. It's all about people in the end. I think you can even say, you know, any problem you run into in business ends up being a people problem, not necessarily a problem with the people, but a problem with how you have managed or not managed to empower them and align them and make them uh, successful in their roles and make them comfortable in, the, in their roles. So every solution ends up being a, a people solution as well. And I think this was the biggest revelation in my career. It's just realizing that it's people first uh, and then the product follows and then the business follows that. And, you know, if you put your faith in that and do the right thing uh, on the people side, the other things will follow. And with that being said, thank you for listening. I'm Patrick Bates. I do hope you'll revisit the channel. But if you don't, please go build something.